The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're learning how science can shed light on the stories told by our ancestors. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my guest today is Adrian Mayer, an independent folklorist and historian of science who investigates natural knowledge contained in pre-scientific myths and oral traditions. Her research looks at ancient folk science precursors, alternatives, and parallels to modern scientific methods. Her two books on pre-Darwinian fossil traditions in classical antiquity and in Native America have opened up a new field within geomythology, and her book on the origins of biological weapons uncovered the ancient roots of biochemical warfare. Her latest book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World, analyzes the historical and archaeological evidence underlying myths and tales of warlike women. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Why don't we start off with a story? Could you tell us about a few of your favorite Amazonian legends? Well, uh, everyone's favorites are, are the ones that are in Greek mythology. They're the most uh, well-known. Uh, one of them is uh, the story of Hercules, or Heracles, as the Greeks called him, uh, setting off on his mission to win the girdle of the Amazon queen named Hippolyta. Uh, actually, it wasn't a girdle, it was a war belt. It was the war belt of Ares, which had been uh, uh, given to the champion of the Amazons and then uh, designated her as the queen. And this was uh, Heracles' great uh, mission. Uh, he took his companions to the southern Black Sea, which was the stronghold of, of uh, Amazon territory. And what's really interesting to me is as, as he set out, and when they arrived... Uh, in the Amazon territory, the Amazons actually came out to welcome the Greeks. And uh, according to some versions of the myth, and all these myths have many different versions, and that's why I like them so much, is that you can just find almost any story you, you like. They all have the same ending, of course, uh, but uh, different, different ways to get there. So in some versions of the myth, Queen Hippolyta welcomed uh, Heracles to her kingdom, asked him the reason for his visit. He told her that an angry goddess had sent him on this impossible mission, and she said, well, here's my belt. Now, several uh, ancient artists actually painted that peaceful scene on their vases. So we know that that was a, that was a popular strand of this story. She offers him her belt in a, as a gift of friendship. But that's not a very thrilling story for uh, Greek myth. And so the main strand that we've got, uh, somehow war broke out, violent fighting. Uh, Heracles kills Queen Hippolyta, grabs the belt, and, and runs back to Greece with it. And we have many, many vase paintings of that more violent uh, uh, story. So part of uh, um, that story, the, the original uh, peaceful overtures, I think, are very interesting because they're meeting they're, the man and woman, both champions of their own uh, people, meeting as equals, and then uh, devolves into warfare. So, so what I like about that story is that it uh, it has several different versions in antiquity. Then there's the story of Achilles, uh, the great champion on the outside the walls of Troy in the legendary Trojan War epic, and. He duels with the queen of the Amazons who comes to help King Priam of Troy. 
they are the allies of the Trojans, and so they're fighting the Greek warriors. And those stories were extremely popular among the Greeks. And I like it, too, because, once again, the, the queen of the Amazons, Penthesilea, her name actually means uh, causes men to mourn or brings grief. And Achilles' name also derives from uh, uh, Greek words that mean causes grief or mourning. So here they are, equals, and they duel, and they duel to the death. Achilles, uh, of course, is triumphant over the foreign enemy. But then as she lays dying at his feet, they lock eyes and he falls in love a bit too late. Well, it's a really tragic love story, but really popular. That moment is shown in many vase paintings and uh, sculptures. and uh, It's just a very um, tragic romance that is just irresistible. So that's, that's another favorite. But I have to say that my very favorite Amazon stories actually don't come from Greece. They come from Persia, Egypt. Central Asia, uh, where the female warrior and the male warrior ride out to fight on the battlefield, and they're so equally matched that they fight all day and all night. Another day and night, they can't. No one can win because they're so equally matched, and they decide to rest. And while they're resting, they decide we're so equal. Why don't we uh, become friends and? war companions and ride off together fighting our enemies together. And they do this over and over again. It's the opposite of the dark, doom-laden Greek story where the um, the Amazons are always defeated and killed. So uh, I have to say my favorites are the ones where, they, where uh, love triumphs over war. <laughs> I love these stories, but as you said, <laughs> many of these stories are quite contradictory, aren't they not? Oh, yes. Uh, and the fact that there are so many different stories about Amazons and Amazon queens, that they have so many different versions of their lives and deaths, I think, uh, I think that's sort of a hallmark that they were considered heroines by the Greeks, even though they're foreign women. They're very heroic. They're just as heroic and noble as the Greek champions. It's just that, the, of course, when the Greeks are telling the stories about fighting foreign uh, Heroes, even if they turn out to be women, uh, no matter how beautiful and attractive and admirable they are, they have to be overcome. Um, so uh, there are contradictory moments in many of these threads, different threads of, of the stories. Why, why might that be, all those contradictions? Well, I think it just attests to the deep and profound popularity of these stories. Originally, I had thought that I might give a title to my book, something like Amazons in Love and War, because I found, to my surprise, that there were just as many love stories as there were war stories about Amazons. And I think that that's a sort of tension that points to, oh, the Greeks who are telling these stories are feeling ambivalent about women who are so strong and independent, totally different from Greek women who are kept at home, minding children and weaving. They're not even allowed outdoors. Um, and yet there's this great attraction, sort of a push-pull feeling about foreign women who uh, are just as active as as, as the men. They, they live a harsh lifestyle. They all know how to ride. They can use weapons, defend themselves, and go to war. I just think that that's, uh, that's part of the tension that everyone... Uh, in Greece knew these stories, and the fact that we have more than 150 personal names of Amazons from, they're inscribed on vases, and they're uh, written in texts 
130 or 50, 150 names of Amazons from antiquity. That's a lot of names to, to have survived. Who knows how many more there were? And the implication is that each one of those Amazons had her own story. So there, there must have been so many stories about Amazons that, that are lost today. We don't even have them. Uh, we're lucky that we do have some fragments of them. Well, so then how do we untangle the myths from, from who these women might actually have been? What, what kind of evidence do you look at? Well, we can look at uh, history, for instance. We, we know that there were Scythian peoples almost surrounding Greece from the north uh, around to the east, and that these, uh, these were nomadic people of the steppes uh, stretching all the way from Thrace, which is north of, of Greece, all the way to Mongolia, all, all the way to actually to China. Um, and these people were nomadic, as I said, so they... They ranged over this area. They didn't stay put in one place, and they were in small tribes that waxed and waned. Sometimes they got together and unified in a big confederation, and when they did that, they often made conquests, and the Greeks actually feared these people, although they didn't know much about them. Um, They first started meeting them uh, when they began colonizing the Black Sea. They set up colonies on the rim of the Black Sea, and there they met people uh, who were more settled from the Scythian tribes and who could tell them about the people who lived a more nomadic life across the steppes. So I think there's, um, there's, there's that historical evidence, but I think the most compelling evidence, of course, is the archaeological evidence. And it's only recently that we've been uh, able to actually prove without a doubt that there really were women living lives very much like Amazon lives as described by the ancient Greeks. Well, in your book, you classify the women that we call Amazons into three groups. Uh, the real nomadic horsewomen, uh, the Amazons of classical mythology, and the non-Greek warrior women. So was there a real tribe of women called the Amazons? Uh, the linguistic evidence seems to suggest that the very first instances of the of the word Amazon in Greek uh, literature that would have been around the time of Homer, in the, the, around the seventh seventh uh, century BC, uh, that the word was used to describe a tribe of both men and women, but a tribe that was. Uh, notorious for the for the fact that the women were just as ind- were independent like the men. Um, there's some linguistic evidence. Uh, it's rather technical, but um, I think we could say without a doubt that there were probably not any uh, stable societies of women only. But among nomads, it's totally reasonable lifestyle to have women uh, and girls being trained exactly like their brothers and husbands and fathers to ride horses. Uh, They start riding when they're about two years old, um, and they become adept with a bow and arrow. Uh, They can hurl spears. Um, They can defend themselves. If you think about it, that's that's very rational for uh, small nomadic tribes where everyone is a stakeholder. Everyone is expected to contribute to the defense of the tribe and then to go out uh, and and bring back game and plunder. So it, it made a lot of sense for the nomads. Where the Greeks were agricultural people, it doesn't make sense for them. So they were astounded by the uh, the freedom that the women were accorded. 
This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Adrienne Mayer about her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. So where does the word Amazon come from, then? You, you mentioned its linguistic roots. You know, the most notorious uh, factoid that almost everyone has heard about Amazons uh, is that the name means... Uh, that they lacked a breast or that they sacrificed one breast so that they could uh, draw a bow uh, or hurl a spear. And as any real-life archer or even a fan of the Hunger Games knows, that's just physiologically ridiculous. And in fact, the claim was rejected in classical antiquity by writers and artists. And yet this, it's just, uh, this idea just sticks like superglue, maybe because it's so uh, so vivid. But it was invented by a Greek historian who was attempting to make the word Amazon, which was not a Greek word, it's a loan word from some foreign language, he was attempting to give it a Greek meaning. And it sounded a bit like the Greek word for lacking a breast. Now, once he said that, then that sort of demands a story. And so he came up with a story, well, they must have done this, uh, they must have done this in order to be able to shoot a bow. Ridiculous idea and thought to be ridiculous even in antiquity. It was uh, disputed by several writers, even in antiquity, and yet uh, it, it won't go away. The word is unanimously agreed to be by scholars. Scholars unanimously agree that Amazon is not a Greek word. Now, they debate what the derivation is, but it has nothing to do with breasts in Greek. So um, I would say that the most logical theory that is generally accepted today is that it's an it comes from an ancient Iranian word, ha mazon, which mean, simply means warrior, and uh, you can see how that that might have been taken up into uh, ancient Greek language when Greeks first encountered steppe peoples of uh, of the eastern lands. So does Amazon is that an ethnic group or or does it just describe the women only group then? Well, as you said, there were there are three classifications of Amazons. When you're talking about Amazons, you're talking about um, there's the myth, the mythic qu- Amazon queens and their armies uh, of of women um, that we discussed earlier, um, and then there are the Amazon-like women of the steppe tribes. So even in antiquity, the ancient Greek writers conflated the two. They understood that the Amazons of their myth were somehow related to or uh, the sisters of real, uh, real live women who lived on the steppes around the Black Sea and beyond. So it's both an ethnic group and a mythological term. Is it possible that there was a society of self-governing women? Some Greeks thought that Amazons lived without men. But then, of course, that raises all sorts of problems of how do they perpetuate themselves, right. and which led to a lot of speculation by male Greek writers on um, exactly how a uh, society of women only would uh, reproduce themselves. Uh, led to all kinds of tales of how they met other uh, other men from other nearby tribes on a seasonal basis, and uh, how they only raised their girl babies and gave the baby boys back to their father's tribes, or uh, in some of the more lurid stories by the Greeks, they killed the baby boys or maimed them somehow. Uh, in, the, in archaeology, uh, the archaeological excavations of the tombs of 
the women who were the models for Amazons, we don't find any evidence that, that there were women only. Um, the, the men and women are often buried together uh, in the same graves. Uh, babies uh, are buried with the women. Uh, babies are buried with the men. It, it looks like a, a society of men and women who uh, lived equal lives. Before the advent of, of scientific DNA testing, of course, it used to be taken for granted that any human remains that were buried with weapons or tools must belong to a male warrior. Uh, that, that was just taken for granted. Um, uh, and archaeologists would identify all of the skeletons that they found buried with weapons across the land called Scythia. Um, these are the steppes uh, from the Black Sea all the way to Mongolia. Um, that's the blanket term used by the Greeks, and we now use that too for that same area in antiquity. Um, they just assumed that all of the weapons must belong to men. But that assumption is being called into question by um, DNA testing now. And there are all kinds of uh, stories of mistaken identities that are coming out now because they're, they're now applying DNA tests to uh, some of those skeletons that had been previously identified as male are turning out to be women. I, I know that there was a, um, an instance of two grave mounds from the 4th century B.C., uh, filled with costly treasures. They were excavated in the 60s um, in Amazon territory, Scythian territory. Each of those mounds held uh, just a treasure of weapons, armor, gold, silver, artifacts, and richly equipped horses. And, and inside each mound, there was a pair of skeletons. And the archaeologists in the 60s identified them as two powerful warrior princes um, or chieftains buried with their wives. But uh, just a few years ago, DNA tests were done on those skeletons, and they revealed that all four of the skeletons belonged to women. And so the artifacts and the, and the weapons and everything in the graves belonged to women warriors. Um, artifacts were found inscribed with uh, some names that showed that they had been fighting uh, as allies for a Thracian king who is known historically. Um, so that's a, that was sort of a very exciting overturning of a mistaken identity. Um, just last year, last September, while I was writing my book, uh, there was an unlooted Etruscan tomb was discovered, and it held two skeletons. And uh, one of the skeletons, um, there was a mirror and some needles uh, laying nearby, and the other skeleton was holding a large spear. And this, uh, too, was, uh, this was just in 2013, Archaeologists hailed this as the grave of a powerful warrior chieftain and his wife. Um, but the DNA analysis was done you know, shortly thereafter, and it quickly revealed that the owner of the spear was a female, and the archaeologists really had to scramble to reword their report. Um, there was a very exciting discovery just, just announced last month, it was too late to include in my book. Um, scientific tests re uh, revealed some surprising results about the mysterious second person buried in the uh, magnificent tomb of Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, next to um, the bones that were buried in there, uh, next to Philip's um, remains. Uh, there, there was another golden casket filled with bones of, of an unidentified person. And next to that casket lay a pair of 
gilded greaves. You know, that, that's leg armor. And a fabulous golden Scythian-style bow and, and a, a quiver full of arrows. These were not Macedonian weapons. These are Scythian weapons. And it turns out that the Scythian weapons and the armor belonged to a woman because uh, it turned out that she had mismatched legs. And so the armor fit her legs perfectly. The, ar- the um, leg armor, the greaves, were different sizes. No one could figure out why they're different sizes. It turns out that she had broken a leg, maybe in a horse riding accident, and the leg armor fit her bones perfectly. So who is this real-life Amazon in the royal Macedonian household? There are several theories being proposed uh, now. No one, no one uh, knows for sure, of course, but there are several possibilities. Very few people realize that Alexander the Great had a half-sister who was trained uh, in military arts and actually led an army against uh, um, another army led by another woman. And according to the historians, Alexander's sister actually killed that, <laughs> that uh, enemy queen uh, in a hand-to-hand combat. It's a very little-known story. Some people thought that maybe this armor belongs to her. So why has it taken us so long to properly attribute gender to a lot of the skeletons? Well, I think it just comes from the assumptions of what is masculine, we should call masculine grave goods, and what we can call feminine grave goods. And so across Scythia, across these nomad lands, uh, in the northern Black Sea area, southern Russia, Ukraine, all the way to um, Mongolia, when they opened graves, they found mirrors, um, uh, a lot of jewelry, um, needles, awls, pigments, things like that that they considered female articles, and then they found weapons and tools, which they considered male. But now we know uh, from the DNA testing that about 25 to 37% of the women were actually buried with the weapons and all these other um, uh, items that I just mentioned. It turns out that the males were also buried with mirrors and uh, needles and awls, uh, earrings and jewelry, things like that. So uh, the assumptions about what what constitutes masculine objects and uh, feminine objects has just completely changed when it comes to uh, the nomadic people of the steppes that the Greeks once called Scythia. So how can one tell whether a skeleton was a fighter or a victim? Uh, because a, a lot of what you were writing uh, was talking about sort of the wounds on the bones and such. But how how can you tell what role <laughs> someone played in a battle? It's interesting what how much information bioarchaeology and DNA testing can give us. DNA testing can give us um, the health of the uh, of the person, often the cause of death, not always, and it can tell us with 90% uh, certainty on it using an adult skeletons um, the sex of the um, of the skeleton. So bioarchaeology can tell us even more. A lot of these. Uh, women buried with weapons also had combat injuries uh, and battle injuries made by the very weapons that are found in the graves. And I might add, these are the same weapons that are depicted uh, in the hands of Amazons in Greek vase paintings. Pointed battle axes, swords, and, and 
spears and arrows. Those are all found in Scythian graves and at the site of women who were active warriors. And as I mentioned, about one-third to one-fourth of the women of Scythia were, were active warriors. And one reason that the archaeologists say that is because of the battle injuries. Some of the women have arrows embedded in leg bones, shoulder bones, um, even in, in uh, skulls. Um, there are many uh, skulls with puncture wounds from pointed battle axes, um, and there are sword slashes on the ribs. Now you might ask, were, were these victims or were they fighting, as you just um, suggested? Well, the bioarchaeologists, um, with very careful study of these, can show whether or not the person who received the wound had countered the blow, whether they whether the wounds were uh, inflicted while they were in motion or wh- whether they were inflicted after their death or while they were prone on the ground. Some of the wounds actually indicate uh, a, a flurry of movement um, and the archaeologists then conclude that this must have been uh, hand-to-hand combat. You could tell whether the wounds were delivered from on horseback or on uh, level ground. Um, bioarchaeologists can tell a, a, a striking amount of information from uh, from the condition of the of the skeletons and the injuries. And there was even a there was a part in the book where you were mentioning that uh, you could tell if a skeleton was an archer or not by the way that that their hand bones had developed. Yes, the um, bioarchaeologists, as I mentioned, can uh, can draw a lot of conclusions about the lifestyle uh, of of the skeletons. Um, many of the women were bow-legged from a lifetime of riding horses. There were a lot of injuries that were consistent with uh, horse riding accidents uh, that were then healed. And then uh, I thought most uh, most compelling was the fact that some of the women's hand bones showed. Uh, repeated heavy use of bow and arrow. Now, did they, I have to ask, did they use lassos? Because Wonder Woman had to have gotten it from somewhere. (laughs) I don't know where the inventor of Wonder Woman came up with the lasso. I don't know if he knew uh, about the ancient writers who actually described step horsewomen twirling their lassos uh, in battle. They would uh, entangle the foe pull them off their horse or pull them, uh, drag them along behind their own horse uh, and then finish them off with a pointed battle axe. We have many descriptions of this. Uh, he, may have, he may have come up with it uh, uh, inspired by those, those writings from antiquity, but uh, one of the most uh, amazing uh, artifacts that I actually came across, it's in an obscure museum in, in Mississippi, uh, they have a sm- very small collection of ancient Greek vases, and I was looking at them. One of them uh, is a, a woman's jewelry box from antiquity, 5th century B.C. So this belonged to some Greek woman 2,500 years ago, and it is decorated with a scene of an Amazon dressed in trousers and a tunic on a horse, um, and she is twirling a lasso, and she is about to rope a... Greek warrior who is cowering under his shield. I just think that's an amazing scene for a Greek woman to have on her jewelry box, and I think it tells us something about uh, Greek private life that we we really wish we knew more about. (laughs) You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking about warrior women with Adrian Mayer. 
author of the book, The Amazons. And we'll be right back after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm joined today by Adrian Mayer, independent folklorist and historian of science and author of The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. Now, do we know what language they spoke? It's a very interesting question. What language did Amazons speak? Uh, Most classical scholars, ancient historians, have just uh, assumed that the Scythians as a group, and remember, Scythian was a blanket term for myriad tribes across the steppes. Scholars have assumed that they spoke a form of uh, Proto-Iranian or Ancient Iranian, Ancient Persian. But I sort of began to doubt that because I knew that the Caucasus area, for sure, was just a cauldron of many different ethnicities and an amazing number of languages come from that area some of them very obscure, and many of them not Iranian. So I, I just had this suspicion that ancient Amazons probably didn't all speak the same language. Uh, when I was at the Getty uh, Villa looking at their collection of ancient vases that depict Amazons, I was struck by, struck by one particular vase that showed two Amazons setting off, uh, probably to go hunting. They're setting off with their spears and their hunting dog. And One is turning back to the other, and right above their heads, almost like a cartoon bubble, are two words inscribed above their heads. And I asked uh, one of the vase experts there at the Getty World, uh, has anyone translated these? And he said, no, those are nonsense inscriptions. It's a bunch of Greek letters. Uh, They don't say any word that we, it doesn't say any word that we know from the Greek language. And I said, well, but hasn't anyone ever... Uh, of course, Amazons wouldn't have spoken Greek. Hasn't anyone ever tried to figure out what language this could be? It could be a face painter trying to uh, capture a foreign language in Greek letters. And the face experts said, well, no one's ever asked that before. And so I, it took me a year to find a, a linguist who specialized in northern Caucasus languages from the northern Black Sea area. And I asked him if he would... Uh, indulge in an experiment. And I said, I'm just going to send you a bunch of words that have been classified as nonsense inscriptions, and they were all next to Amazons. I said, do these, do these ring any bell in the languages that you know, the Northern Caucasus languages? And he emailed me back and said, well, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps. This, these words say things like worthy of armor, armed with a dagger, princess, um, Things like that. Where, where'd you get these? <laughs> so I, I told him, and we co-authored an article with the vase expert who told me that no one had ever thought of this idea before. We finally co-authored the article, and it came out in uh, Hesperia. And it's a rather radical idea, because most classical scholars and historians had assumed that all Scythians spoke an Iranian form of languages. Uh, but these turned out to be attempts by Greek vase painters to capture words in ancient Ossetian, Circassian, 
Ubek, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Abkhazian. These are northern Caucasus languages that are not related to Greek or Iranian. So it's a rather radical idea, and that's why I'm very pleased that it's published in the most traditional and conservative classical journal. It seems like there's there's a ton of speculation still to do. We we still only have the barest of evidence for a lot of, of these claims. Yeah. And on that topic, uh, you wrote about something that I actually hadn't heard at all. The Amazons were likely tattooed? I devoted an entire chapter to that just because I was interested in that topic for a long time um, because of some beautiful vase paintings that I had seen Greek vase paintings from 2,500 years ago um, showing uh, foreign women with tattoos. The Greeks kept a lot of slaves, and their slaves, or their favorite uh, place for getting slaves, was around the Black Sea area. And so a lot of women from Thrace and uh, what is now Ukraine, uh, southern Russia, uh, and the Caucasus area lived in Athens and worked as slaves. They were either public slaves and many of them were private slaves in households. So women with tattoos must have been quite uh, a familiar sight for the Greeks. Uh, Foreign women, of course. Now the Greeks themselves uh, were appalled by tattoos. They thought that only slaves would wear tattoos and that no one would voluntarily tattoo themselves. But several ancient Greek writers who traveled in the Black Sea area wrote back that among these peoples, tattoos were a sign of status and uh, only nobodies would have no tattoos and they considered the designs very beautiful. Well, once again, we see this push-pull among the Greeks. They lovingly detailed these tattoos on their vase paintings while uh, calling them uh, barbaric and appalling. So <laughs> I wondered whether uh, whether we could find any uh, any evidence for real-life Amazon-like women tattooing themselves. And lo and behold, they have been uh, discovering mummies of Scythian men and women who lived around the time that the Greeks are portraying tattoos on on foreign warlike women. These women lived in uh, southern Siberia and southern Russia, and they were buried in permafrost, so their bodies were preserved in the ice. And many of them were heavily tattooed. And they were tattooed with geometric designs, uh, fantastic animals, and deer. Those same things were shown on the on the skins of the uh, foreign women in the Greek vase paintings. So I, I felt that we now at last had evidence that Amazons were in fact tattooed. Do we have any idea how they did those tattoos or, or what they used as ink? Actually, it, uh, just last year, uh, some tattoo equipment was found in some Scythian graves. And these consisted of needles. Some of them were actually gilded needles, iron needles gilded, and they found uh, kits of pigments. The pigment that they used was was all blue, darkish blue, very dark blackish blue, um, probably from charcoal in the tattoos that we know of. But the fact that there were pigments along with these tattooing needles uh, suggests that they may also have had colored tattoos. And in fact, Xenophon, ancient Greek writer from... Uh, from around the time of Herodotus, uh, described some tribes who had colorful flower tattoos. Even the children had them. So uh, 
that's more evidence that they might have had colored tattoos. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Adrienne Mayer about her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. Now, I realize we haven't really talked about the non-Scythian Amazons, uh, but there are tons of other warrior women that you talk about in your book. So where else do we see them? I thought one of the most amazing non-Greek stories uh, appears on a papyrus that was recently translated, not, uh, found in the 70s, I believe, and then uh, people have been laboriously uh, translating the stories in this papyrus found in uh, in Egypt. And one of the stories is called The Egyptians and the Amazons. And it tells the story of a queen of the Amazons who lives in what would now be Syria, who goes to battle with an Egyptian prince. And this is one of the stories that I love because they they go out for single combat. And, you know, each army sends their champion warrior. And they fight all day long. And as darkness falls... She calls out, um, it's too dark to fight, we should rest. And he agrees, and they go and rest, and they take off their armor, and they rest together, and they fall in love. And they decide, we'll just announce this to the armies the next morning and unite our armies and go off and fight other enemies. And, uh, there, there's enough uh, in the scraps. I mean, the, the papyrus is in very bad shape, but you can put together the story. And actually, there is a children's book based on this wonderful story, on this papyrus, illustrated by a wonderful archaeological illustrator. Um, and the children's book just has wonderful pictures, and uh, they're historically accurate. It's called How the Amazon Queen Fought the Prince of Egypt, and it's written and illustrated by Tamara Bauer. Um, and uh, she actually... Uh, is an expert archaeological illustrator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and uh, especially in the Egyptian department. And she also works at, uh, in excavations in Egypt. So it's just an amazing uh, story with wonderful pictures and hieroglyphs. Really recommend it for adults, too. <laughs> now, I found it interesting because there are stories about Amazons at sea, but I, I thought that being horsewomen was really one of the defining Amazonian traits? Probably one of the most bizarre chapters in my book is Amazons at Sea, Amazon sailors. Uh, this was inspired by the, uh, a coin that someone, uh, that someone showed me that shows an Amazon, uh, ancient coin from Ankara, uh, uh, Ankara uh, now known as Ankara, um, in, uh, it's the capital of Turkey. Um, this comes from ancient Ankara, uh, and it shows an Amazon carrying her little half-moon shield and her battle axe, dressed like an Amazon. Oh, she's carrying an anchor. And this just uh, captured my attention. What is an Amazon doing with an anchor? Well, I never solved that. But just in the research, I found all these Amazons who went to sea, uh, not voluntarily always. Usually they were uh, somehow accidentally swept out to sea. And, of course, because they're horsewomen, they don't know anything about sailing. But then once they get off the boat in the new land, they capture horses and they begin conquering and plundering and uh, and falling in love with uh, the men of that of that land. So 
some of my favorite stories are in that chapter, Amazons at Sea. There are so many amazing stories in your book. I love this. Thank you. There are a number of stories about how the Amazon Empire vanished, aren't there? Uh, you know, there aren't. In antiquity, the ancient Greek authors will describe an Amazon queen and then uh, her uh, descendants. They talk about them being finally defeated right. and that their name was heard no more. Right. And then they pop up again. <laughs> they pop up in another spot or they pop up. I mean, they, they never really disappear. And in fact, I think you can... It's fair to say that uh, Amazons are just always with us. They're either hidden or sometimes even uh, suppressed. And then other times they just seem to burst back into the limelight and uh, onto the pages of history again. So they just never seem to really disappear. Adrian, thanks very much for being here. Oh, thank you. you. You were a great interviewer. You'll find links to Adrienne Mayer and her book, The Amazons, on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, we'll learn more about the techniques researchers use to study buried bones and gain insights about ancient people. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined now by Professor John Hawkes, the Villas Borghese Distinguished Achievement Professor and Associate Chair of Anthropology at UW-Madison. John is an internationally recognized expert on human evolution and genetics, and he's best known for his work investigating the genetics of ancient humans, their relationship to Neanderthals, and our species' continuing evolution to new environments. Professor Hawks has been a pioneer in sharing scientific results on the Internet with a blog visited by more than 40,000 people per month. He's been seen in television documentaries, including Nova and National Geographic, and his work has been featured in Scientific American, Discover, New Scientist, and The New York Times. John, lovely to have you here. Thanks. I appreciate being here. Now, you're here to talk about what anthropology can tell us about ancient human remains. So let's say you find a shin bone in Siberia. What kinds of things can you realistically learn about the person that that bone came from? Well, it's really interesting because because recently a thigh bone was found in Siberia of a about a 45,000-year-old specimen. And that's the first thing you can figure out. You can figure out how old it is. Um, this was found eroding out of a riverbank, and the people who found it are prospecting those riverbanks for ancient fossils. They normally find the fossils of mammoths, other kinds of animals. This one was happened to be a human thigh bone. So you look at that and you say, wow, you know, what can one bone tell us? First, it tells us its age. We can do radiometric dating on it and figure out how old it is. The second thing it can tell us is something about the affinities of the person who who it belonged to. You can look at these bones, and they actually differ in form between modern humans and other kinds of ancient humans. Uh, and so immediately you say, well, I think this is probably the bone of a modern human. Uh, 
Today, you can do genetic sampling to confirm that. And so we have, in fact, the entire genome of this individual uh, sequenced from the extracts of his bone. Beyond that, you can usually tell some details about an individual's lifestyle. If we didn't have genetic testing, we'd be interested, is this a male or a female? You can usually tell that from bone. Um, we'll be interested in activity level. You know, is this somebody who lived a strenuous lifestyle? Is this somebody who was doing particular kinds of activities? We can often tell that kind of thing. So the bones have clues for us, and nowadays with technology, we can really, you know, add to those clues by by adding in very concrete facts about affinities and timing. That seems like an incredible amount of information to derive from one bone. So how exactly do you do that? Uh, for example, how do you determine just something simple like how tall the person was? Stature is one of the most important variables that we deal with as anthropologists. For one thing, you recognize somebody by how tall they are. And if we find a mysterious bone and it might be a crime victim, we want to know, does this person, you know, can we identify them? It's also important because it indicates things about health. Uh, how tall you are depends on how healthy you were when you grew up. And so those two things are really important to us. If we have a complete long bone, one of the thighs, shins, uh, or even an arm bone, humerus or, or radius ulna, uh, we can do a regression against the variability in those bone lengths in living people and make an estimate of how tall somebody was. Uh, that at the moment is the most accurate way we have to do it. It gives us an error of a couple of centimeters on either side, uh, but you know when you're talking about how tall is somebody, and and the question is, are they you know 180 centimeters or 183 centimeters? You know those sort of blend together in most people's perception anyway. Well, and what about age? How do you figure out how how old the remains are? But but more than that, how old that person was when they died? We can figure out age very accurately when we're dealing with children. And that's because children's bone is developing and their teeth are erupting over time. They first have deciduous baby teeth that come in and then they have permanent teeth that come in. Those two aspects of development allow us to figure out their age within, certainly within a couple of years and usually within a year. When we have adults, it becomes more difficult because your body has stopped developing it does change over time, uh, but those changes are highly dependent on the lifestyle you live. So in prehistoric remains, we can usually look at somebody's teeth. Those teeth will wear against the food that they ate. They also wear against each other in the mouth. And that level of wear can give us some indication of how old the individual was. But in today's Western societies, we're eating foods that don't wear our teeth very much. And so we tend to have really unworn teeth, even as very old individuals. Um, we can look at changes that the bone undergoes. The, the bones of your skull continue to knit together somewhat more. The, the pubis uh, in your pelvis, that point where the two pubes come together, that changes with age. And so we can get some indicators of age. But for an adult, we're usually looking at the best we can do within five or even ten years as opposed to within a couple of years. Well, and how about ethnicity? It's, it seems to be in the news pretty much constantly. Do, do we do gene sequencing on, like, every body now? 
<laughs> when bodies are found in a forensic context, uh, if they're possibly victims of crime or if they're unidentified people in the United States, in North America, there is genetics that's done. Those genetic tests are a standard set of genetic markers that are highly useful for identifying a person. Uh, they really vary a lot between people, and if you look at 14 or, or more markers, you have a, a very strong chance of an identification if you have a matching sample from somebody that you're interested in. Um, however, those markers are a little bit less useful for answering questions about ethnicity uh, because they're developed on the basis of being really, really variable in all people. They don't give as accurate an indication of which ancestry group you're from. We can apply different tests to get an idea of where someone's ancestors lived. Are they predominantly from sub-Saharan Africa? Are they predominantly from, from East Asia? Those are not routinely applied today to forensic remains, but you know the time is probably coming when they will be. Is there sort of a, a certain cutoff date for, you know, this set of remains is 100,000 years old, we should probably look at certain things? When remains are found in the United States, there is immediately, you know, an assessment as to are these likely to be very recent things that are possibly the victim of a crime? Are they older things? You know, you're making a road cut or something like that and you find bone. Is this something where this is archaeological, where it represents somebody that's been in the ground for maybe a thousand years? Or is it something that's historical? Have we disturbed a grave site from a hundred years ago? Those assessments require us to look at the bones and say, you know, is this somebody who's of European affinity, in which case it's probably uh, a more recent grave? Is it somebody that is, you know, associated with any kind of artifacts? You know, are you finding grave goods? Are you finding, you know, nails from a coffin? We do apply carbon dating to things to figure out how old they are sometimes, but those tests are expensive, and often it's, it's easier to look at things and, and say, okay, well, I know, you know generally what I'm dealing with. If I become interested in their age, then I'm going to start applying you know, radiocarbon or something like that. It's a long chain of decision-making that you go through when you have human physical remains. Well, how does that work with gender then? Because we only recently started uh, identifying the gender of some warrior remains. Now, this was in the, the news a while back. Uh, and apparently it was just sort of taken for granted that they were male remains. But recent research has shown that many of the remains are actually female. Yeah, within a cultural context, the sex of uh, human remains is relatively straightforward. Uh, an anthropologist can usually determine sex with about 90 to 95% accuracy if you've got the skeleton of an individual. Now, 90 to 95% accuracy sounds really good, but I mean, you have a 50-50 chance of being right just right. by guessing, you know? So, so the reality is that males and females overlap to a substantial degree in their anatomy um, just because you have large women that live strenuous, active lifestyles. As they age, the, the muscle markings become more apparent on their bones. You know, those distributions that we look at for male versus female differences overlap quite a lot. Even though they overlap in size, the anatomy, we can look at details and we can straighten it out usually, but there will be a substantial degree of error just from the fact that 
the sexes really do overlap. When we go to a different cultural context, we're often looking at a population that has a different lifestyle, that has different nutrition, that has different muscularity. And so looking at one part of the skeleton, we can easily be led astray. If we have a whole skeleton, you have to look at the parts that are most reliable. And the most reliable part in sexing a skeleton is the pelvis. But if you're interested in you know, the fact that they've been found with grave goods, you're excavating them carefully, you're not necessarily going to look at the pelvis first. It, it might actually be one of the last things to come out. So when you're trying to assess something about the biology of a person from their skeleton, you know, we try to be very cautious about it and say, you know, until we have the maximum evidence we can, you know, we're not going to be very conclusive about it. It's not like on television when the forensic people find a tiny piece of evidence and they know all the answers. We have to be very clever in putting together different lines of evidence and making sure that all those lines of evidence coincide with each other. That's a process that takes quite a lot of time. The longer I do this show, the more I realize that nothing is like it is on television. <laughs> yeah, that is for sure. <laughs> This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to John Hawkes, the Villas Borghese Distinguished Achievement Professor and Associate Chair of Anthropology at UW-Madison. And we're talking about identifying ancient human remains. Now, you can also tell what kind of illnesses someone might have had, right? Yeah. There are many kinds of illnesses that leave marks on bones. By no means all of them. And, you know, when we're talking about cause of death, it's actually fairly rare that we're able to take bones and determine exactly what the cause of death was. Um, you know, unless you have, you know, as they do in some medieval contexts, they have points where the bone is hacked apart by axes. That kind of, then you know. Um, but when it comes to disease, diseases often leave marks on bones. Um, some chronic diseases like tuberculosis, uh, syphilis, these leave very obvious marks on bone. Um, malnutrition of all kinds will leave evidence in bones, and bones actually develop differently in children that are malnourished. And so you can see those aspects of health. Also, illnesses that children suffer as they're growing will leave marks on their development. We often find in archaeological contexts teeth that have lines across them. Uh, those lines are points where the enamel didn't form correctly, and they're points where the enamel development was arrested. Often this is by very high fevers that, that stop those cells that grow the enamel uh, from doing their work. Um, those kinds of things give us indications of the health status of an ancient population. They don't necessarily tell us how an individual died, but the timing of those things will tell us how those people lived. Well, speaking about how individuals died, I, I've heard that Neanderthal injuries are somewhat similar to those found in modern bull riders. Is that true? It's very interesting because when you look at modern humans by occupation and say, what injuries do they have? Of course, people that are active in factory work or some sorts of things that require a lot of manual effort, they'll have a lot of arm injuries, a lot of hand injuries, but you don't tend to see, you know, rib injuries. Um, if you look at people that are drivers and look at what happens to them, you have a certain pattern of injuries. You know, they have some closed head injuries. They do get some rib injuries because they'll hit the steering wheel. People that work with animals a lot, rodeo riders is, is one 
an example of that, but but also people that are ranchers, people that are working with large animals um, that are thrown from them sometimes they get falls, they are breaking ribs they 're also um, occasionally having head injuries. What we don 't see in them as much is thigh injuries, leg injuries. you know those bones are pretty durable. Um, and can take body weight, you know, falling to the ground. And that pattern of injuries is also what we see in Neanderthals. It's interesting, and you wonder how much to make of it, you know, because they obviously weren't riding bulls. Right. Um, and what's going on is it's just that this is a natural pattern of injuries for humans that are active and are encountering large animals and, and probably encountering each other. You know, one of the interesting things about Neanderthals is that the pattern of injuries is not significantly different between the skeletons that we think are male and the ones we think are female. And so it is possible that both sexes are participating in these hunts. It's also possible that this is not just hunting that's causing this. It's also interpersonal violence. And those two patterns are, are not necessarily really easy to distinguish from each other. We've been talking about situations where, that are sort of ideal, where you have either a complete skeleton or at least a complete bone. But you are not always lucky enough to find a complete bone. More, more often, it's a bone fragment, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. When we look at the distant prehistoric record, we are always dealing with fragments of things. And, uh, and often they're fragments that just don't tell us anything. You know, they're, they're pieces of bone that we know this is human bone, but, you know, it doesn't tell us anything, you know, really substantial. Sometimes we can apply chemical or genetic testing to those. Uh, many of the, the recent discoveries of Neanderthals and other ancient populations have come from sampling the genes out of pieces of bone that we can't tell anything about anatomically, um, but they do preserve that genetic record. Well, what can't anthropology tell us about ancient human remains? I'm wondering about the limitations. We'll never know certain things about the cultures of ancient people. And as we move from anatomy and what we, in a general sense, would call biology. You know, this is what you're born with. This is what your genes are. This is how you've developed. So we move from that toward more behavioral things. Here's how this person acted. Here's how they lived. Uh, here's what their day-to-day -day life was like. We markedly reduce in what we can say. We're often most interested in whether ancient people were interacting with each other in the ways that humans do. Are they, you know, symbolic in the way that they communicate with each other? Can they talk? You know, those kinds of answers are the most difficult for us. And as a function of that, the ones that we often debate the most. Until five years ago, it was an active debate whether Neanderthals ever contributed any of their genetics to living people. You know, there were many people who said it never happened. There were some people who said, yeah, it probably happened. We now know that they contributed about 2% of the genomes of, of living people, especially outside of sub-Saharan Africa. We have that answer from genetics. We know it with great confidence, and yet what it doesn't tell us is in many ways more than what it does tell us. <laughs> you know, we don't know what the pattern of those interactions were like. We don't know when and where they happened, and, uh, and we don't know what their importance was yet. John, great to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate it.
And that was Professor John Hawkes, the Villas Borghese Distinguished Achievement Professor and Associate Chair of Anthropology at UW-Madison. We've linked to him on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And, of course, we've also linked to Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and iTunes, so do head there for all your program-related needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. (laughs) 